want to start off tonight by um, making an inquiry. I'm curious to know if anyone sat down with you or helped you, let's say, within the first year of you being a Christian, uh, did anyone come alongside of you and say, let me help you understand how to read the Bible? Anybody? I see there's some handful or so of you. Um, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. I'm glad that there were at least some people that came alongside of you and said, let me help you understand how to read the Bible. Uh, I didn't really have that. I'm thankful that God put people in my life uh, that helped me to understand certain things in the Bible, which is what is probably true for the rest of us. But isn't it strange that maybe five, six, seven, eight hands went up in, in a room with this many people uh, that no one came alongside so many of us and said, here, let me help you understand how to read the Bible. Now, I imagine lots of you had people tell you to read the Bible, right? Most of us, uh, when we become Christians, people say, well, you need to read the Bible now that you're a Christian. You need to have a quiet time and you need to do this and maybe start with John. And, and those things are helpful. I'm glad someone said, Pat, you need to read the Bible. Read the Bible every day. Read the Bible in the morning. Those are great things. Um, but how helpful it would be if people came alongside new Christians and said, let me help you understand uh, th this overwhelming, massive, complicated, ancient book. Motivates me to try to try to help equip you uh, so you can equip others. It makes me want to be mindful of uh, the place to help new believers. Um, they hear sermons, they hear preaching, and I think uh, at its best, preaching helps us to know how to read the Bible better. Uh, that's probably how I learned how to read the Bible hearing good Bible preachers um, kind of model it for me in sermons, and maybe some of you could say that as well. What we're going to do tonight is talk about how to read the Bible Christianly. Okay, so this is week two in this series called uh, God's Drama of Redemption, how the whole Bible um, holds together. It's not just miscellaneous um, unrelated different books, 66 of them, that there actually is a thread that goes through, that there actually is um, a grand story, a grand narrative, if you will. And I want us to get better at seeing that. And one way to get better is to talk about how to read the Bible. And I'm saying how to read the Bible Christianly. Uh, oddly enough, when I got home this afternoon from church and I turned my um, podcasts on my phone, uh, I was having one download, and usually every Sunday, the White Horse Inn downloads uh, onto my phone. And I looked at the podcast from the White Horse Inn for this week. Anybody else get it today? You guys need to listen to the White Horse Inn. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And uh, this week's podcast is called how to read the Bible. <laughs> so I just want to go on record as saying that I haven't listened to it yet. So maybe you're going to say you should have listened to it. Um, and I will listen to it probably tonight or tomorrow. Um, but I'm thankful that they're trying to help people do the very same thing. Molly said, do you want to quick listen to it? See, see what they have to say. And I, I'm thankful that I could say, you know, essentially, essentially, I think they're going to be trying to say the same thing. Um, it's not just a bunch of unrelated stories that don't have much to do with each other. It's actually about something great and grand, and there's actually a unifying kind of theme. So if you're a new Christian, awesome. This is going to help you. Most of you aren't new Christians. I say, awesome, it's going to help you. And I hope what happens is it helps you to help other people um, maybe get a head start like a lot of us didn't have so that we can read it, understand it better, and grow in light of that. 
I doubt we'll get done tonight. Um, proof that I'm not superstitious, 13 guiding principles. Okay, 13 guiding principles for helping us to read the Bible better. Don't believe in superstition because I believe in the sovereignty of God. So we're going to go for lucky number 13. Don't believe in that either, but it sounds good. Um, so we'll see how we go and, and see how, how we do tonight. Not exhausted by any means, but literally this is me thinking if I could sit down with someone who knew nothing, how could I help them? How could I help them uh, in a way that I wish I could have been helped? Now, granted, sometimes tonight, maybe I'm going to talk at a little bit higher level at times, uh, and I, I wouldn't go into the details with a brand new Christian, but other times not. Okay? All right. Number one, first guiding principle to help us read the Bible like Christians, uh, read the Bible like you would other books. Read the Bible like you would other books. Em emphasis on books. I'm going to sit down with you. I'm going to say, read the Bible like you read other books. There's 66 books in the Bible. There are the 66 books in the Bible, what well, we call it the book. That's what Bible means. But there are all these different kinds of books in the Bible. And we need to be aware of that. Just like we would read different documents uh, with different kinds of perspectives, we need to realize the Bible has a lot of different kinds of documents, if you will, right? You have uh, all different kinds of literature. You have all different kinds of genres in the Bible, and we need to be aware of that. If you pick up a, a newspaper, you're going to read that a certain way. When I was in college, that would be different from the way I read Camus um, in English class, which would be different from the way I would read uh, a love note from my wife. Well, there are all different kinds of literature in the Bible, so we need to be aware of that. And what happens is we don't even need somebody to tell us. It's almost instinct, and we get better at it. We read different genres, and we read them, uh, and we kind of understand that that's what we're doing. If I just was looking at one of the uh, memoirs from a certain president that I kind of wanted to read sometime. I'm going to read that differently than I'm going to read um, a love note from my wife. And I won't have to have somebody tell me, okay, time to switch the way you think here. You just get better at doing it. It's a skill that we have, and it's a skill that we develop over time. Well, this is a, something called hermeneutics. It's Bible interpretation. We're all uh, interpreters. We interpret things all the time. And uh, based upon the fact that Jesus, if we're going to read the Bible Christianly, Jesus believed the Bible was true, and Jesus believed the Bible should be taken at face value. We're Christians, followers of Christ. We believe the Bible is true, and we take it at face value. Uh, another way of saying it, is we, as Christians have been saying for a long time, we take the Bible literally. But that doesn't mean we take it literalistically. It doesn't mean there aren't figures of speech. It doesn't mean there aren't um, types and things like that. But generally in Christian circles, we say we take the Bible literally. We take it truthfully. It actually is true when it says things. Uh, and if you want to be more technical, people say uh, we interpret the Bible um, according to to historical, grammatical, interpretive perspectives. And that's the fancy way of looking at it, okay? We take it as historic with all different kinds of um, historical detail. We take it as uh, grammatical, meaning the words are actually true and the words are to be uh, seen as important. And so we follow a historical, grammatical interpretation, a literal interpretation, okay? So... The reason I'm going down that road is we read the Bible like we would other books. Paying attention to the history. Paying attention to the grammar. 
paying attention to the genre. Uh, and we need to do that. It doesn't come to us in just one kind of format. And we need to be aware of that. All different kinds of things in the Bible. All different kinds of things from historical kinds of things that we need to understand and know to grammatical things that we need to come to understand and know. And then there's all the different kinds of genre. And I don't want to get uh, bogged down in it, but just to, to think a, about, a little bit about the different kinds of genre as we're looking at the Bible. So you've got historical genre, right? You've got poetic genre. Um, you have prophetic you have apocalyptic, you have epistles. And the longer you're Christian, the better you get at recognizing differences. You say, oh, this is, this is poetry here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see it as poetry. So much of the Old Testament is poetry. And you're reading through the Psalms and, and you see, oh, this is poetry. And so I see there's a lot of parallelism. That helps me to interpret the Bible. Because he'll say one thing one way and then he'll say the same thing a different way and it's like it interprets itself. And that just comes more naturally over time as you're paying attention to how it flows. And it's not something anybody had to teach me in a class, but it does take time to get better at over time. We've been studying the gospel according to Luke for 30-some weeks now at Omaha Bible Church, last time I checked. And it's a, it's a historical book. So we're reading it as history. Luke is writing it as history. And here's what's going on. And here are the details. And therefore, a lot of it doesn't have to do with us. It has to do with Jesus and what Jesus did. But yet at the same time, Jesus, the eternal God-man, providing redemption. And we start seeing, you know what? There are some of these things that most certainly affect us and relate to us. And, and you don't have to stop and think about it very much to, to kind of sort that out comes rather naturally because you're reading it like you would another book. Some things are going to apply. Some things aren't going to apply. But we're reading it as history. We don't just read through Luke and say, somehow this is directly speaking to me. No, it's describing what happened 2,000 years ago with lots of application for us. But most, most of the time, nobody has to tell you that it's history. It's describing history. We take it seriously, we take it at face value, and we want to apply it where it needs to apply. I mentioned that we take the Bible literally. It doesn't mean we take everything literalistic. Um, and, and, and so when we see things like in poetry, and we have God with wings... We don't think God has wings. We take the Bible literally. But when we say we take the Bible literally, in a sense, we're saying we take it seriously. Um, it's, it's about real things, genuine things. It's not um, fantasy. But God can be described in poetic ways, as Psalm 17, 8 says. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Even that. I wasn't even planning to talk about that, but, but we all know uh, that that's not talking about something literal. It's a figure of speech. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The psalmist doesn't think that God has wings. We wouldn't conclude that. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, God protect me. We read the Bible like we read other books and we can make sense of these kinds of things. Maybe one other example. Why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. 
And this is what's um, under the, the label. I don't want to go through all of these, but this would be under apocalyptic literature. Uh, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, and there's all kinds of imagery used. doesn't mean you can't take it at face value in a true sense, but you have to realize, and I have to realize, everybody who says they take the Bible at face value in a true sense, everybody, everybody I've ever met allows for figures of speech. There are certainly figures of speech. There's, there are images. There are things that we don't take literalistically. Even in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I mean, even that there. Do do we take that literalistically? Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. Context is he's writing to the seven churches. So Jesus comes to the door of the church and goes, Anybody home? Churches that probably didn't have church buildings. No, but we understand what he's, what he's getting at. Je- Jesus is there. Jesus wants them to repent. And Jesus is dead serious about it. And, and he's earnest about it. And he's at the door, knocking, getting attention. I'm here. You can't just do whatever you want to do as if I'm not around. And so then we keep reading. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, literally, I don't know of anyone who would take that literally. In a literalistic sense, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Probably not literally. It's, it's, it's fellowship. It's intimacy. I'm with you. We're friends. There's not um, antagonism. Verse 21, the one who conquers. Are, are we in the military? That's military verbiage. One who conquers? No, he's talking about, he's using the military imagery about battle, spiritual battle, right? And being steadfast and, and earnest and standing firm. I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down. He, he's not the, the military one. He conquered in a spiritual sense and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Literal ears? Everybody has ears, right? It's not what he's talking about. Everybody has ears. What's he talking about? You know what he's talking about. You don't have to have a degree in hermeneutics or exegesis or Koine Greek. Spiritual hearing, right? If you're listening to what I'm saying, then there's the benefit there. And so, all of that to say, we need to realize that we, 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 ha- we know so many rules of literature without ever taking a class. It's amazing because we're communicators and God made us that way. Read the Bible like you'd read other books. It doesn't mean you can't get better at it by studying original languages, by studying different kinds of genres, by studying different kinds of literature. Absolutely, we can get better. But I could tell a brand new Christian, you, you're, you're already pretty good at it. Okay? If you just realize there are different kinds of genre and just realize that the Bible is true, but it communicates in all different kinds of literary forms, you'll be on the right road. And over time, you'll get better at it. And maybe the church will have a class on these kinds of things. It will help you get better at it. But just realize God is a communicator. He made us with language. He made human beings. He can make himself clear, and he does so in many different ways in his word. really is helpful when we understand that sort of thing. Number two, another guideline. Read the Bible like you would no other book. 
Read the Bible like you would no other book, right? Read it like you would other books. There's not a, a heavenly grammar. But the Bible is a heavenly book. Read the Bible like you read no other book. Because no other book is God-breathed. If we're Christians, we believe what Jesus believed about the Bible. And according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from where? Come on, guys. From the mouth of God, right? Jesus believes in inspiration. Jesus believes 2 Timothy 3.16 before there was a 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's put it another way. Paul believed what Jesus said. And so as Christians, we say we don't believe the Bible is just another book, even though we follow those rules of grammar like other languages. We believe the Bible is God's word. And so we, we need to see it differently. What it says is true. What it says is earnest. It doesn't have errors or problems. Another good passage to write down about this would be 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. 2 Peter 1, 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Oh, so I'm going to read this like no other book because the Scripture comes from, yes, human beings writing. That's why we can see, oh, Peter wrote like a fisherman and Paul wrote like a more educated person. Okay? We can see differences. We can see John writing a certain way and Luke writing a certain way. But at the same time, God was orchestrating according to, according to Second Peter and, and he was carrying them along. So yes, their personalities come out. Yes, their grammar comes out. Their upbringing comes out. But God is controlling. God is carrying them along. It's the same verbiage that's used outside of uh, the Bible uh, in first century literature for the blowing of a sailboat in its in its in its um, in its wings. In its sails, there's something greater controlling it. So as Christians, we believe the Bible is the word of God. We read it differently. I'm going to take it seriously like I wouldn't take other things seriously. That also helps us, and we're going to get to, the, to that in a moment, helps us to see that while there might be 66 different books with different kinds of genres and different kinds of emphases, if God wrote it, it would make a lot of sense if it held itself together and there is a unifying kind of theme, if He's behind the whole thing. That brings us to number three. Think of the Bible as God's drama of redemption. Think of the Bible as God's drama of redemption, which is what we talked about last time together. One ultimate author overseeing and controlling all of the human authors, and if that's the case, it would make sense. Oh, now let's fill it in a little bit more. If this God has a purpose in this world, an ultimate overriding purpose it would make sense and it and it started before time began it would make sense if there was if there was connectedness if there was a, a an unfolding of this thing if there was actually a theme that held it all together and that's what we looked at last time in Ephesians chapter 1 where we have before the foundation of the world before time begins as we know it a purpose a plan, a redemptive plan that centers on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's the case, before time begins, this is just a review from, from last time, it would make sense that when Genesis 1-1 happens, 
somehow that's going to fit as part of the plan, not to mention Genesis 2 and 3 and 4, not to mention Exodus, not to mention Leviticus, not to mention, and on and on it goes. It would only make sense if God is the orchestrator behind all of this. It's God breathed that there would be a unifying theme. And my argument last time was, it's redemption. God is, God is redeeming. God is, God is doing this. And He's doing it ultimately to center on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, again, is where I would take you. And then we start looking at passages like Genesis 3. We look at Romans 5 and the two Adams representing humanity. And we look at Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abram, I should say. And then we look at Galatians and we see how how Christ is the fulfillment of that. And we look at Romans chapter 8 and how now we even have the end of the world, the end of time coming into view. And it too is tied to Christ in his redemptive work. So beginning to end. I liked what uh, one Bible scholar said about this. Ed Clowney. He said this. The Bible is much more than William Howe stated. A golden casket where gems of truth are stored. It is more than a bewildering collection of oracles, proverbs, poems, architectural directions, annals and prophecies. The Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, but it does not begin there. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't begin there, nor does it contain what you would expect in a national history. The narrative does not pay tribute to Israel. Rather, it regularly condemns Israel and justifies God's severest judgments. The story is God's story. It describes His work to rescue rebels from their folly guilt, and ruin. I think that's pretty helpful. God rescues. He delivers them. He's the one that does it. Who's the emphasis? It's Him. As He delivers us. Where's the emphasis? It's on Him. Now there's some pushback here. Objection. Divine drama of redemption. One objector is going to be the anti-supernaturalist, right? If you don't believe that there's a God who's in charge and in control and personal, you're going to say 66 books and there's no way there could be a unifying theme. Nope, can't do it. It's just a bunch of miscellaneous stuff. Well, we're reading the Bible Christianly and Christians are supernaturalists. And so we believe in God and we believe God can be in control. But that is one pushback. Okay? But we're not naturalists. There are also some people who say, this can't be the case. This can't be the case because it's not about redemption. In fact, this is what some, some dispensationalists do this, not all of them. Some dispensationalists say, you're totally wrong. The theme is not redemption. The theme is the glory of God. Okay? And there's, there's among Bible believers, some tension here. Um, I think it's a false choice, don't you? Um, no one who thinks it's redemption would argue that ultimately everything is for the glory of God. Okay? Absolutely everything is ultimately for the glory of God. But how does God show His glory supremely in this world? Who is the centerpiece of absolutely everything when it comes to God's plan and purpose in this world. 
But let's turn to Colossians and see. Colossians chapter 1. It's just a false choice. And so I'm going to take issue with, with some folks who say, well, it's not redemption. You can't make it redemption. That's the glory of God. That sounds pious. It sounds very lofty. Um, but how about it's both? It is the glory of God. Absolutely. I'm going to agree and say, yep, sign me up for that. For that. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God in redemption. Colossians 1 is super helpful here because what we see in Colossians 1 verses 13 to 20 is Christ is central to, to, to everything. One thing I want you to notice when we read Colossians 1 13 to 20 is the, the emphasis on universality. Okay? Uh, the emphasis on all. The emphasis on um, including everything. How about this? Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of, here we, here we go, we're starting, of all creation. It's universal. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, there we go again, were created through Him and our, our, and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 18, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. That's enough for me to say, I think everything centers on Christ. And I'm feeling really good about meeting God and saying, you know what, I think Jesus is supreme above all other things. Jesus, the Redeemer. And I think you are glorified in that. He is what we've been anticipating. He is the fulfiller. He is the reconciler. He is center and central to absolutely everything. I'm feeling really good about that. There are a lot of things in my life I don't feel great about. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of hills I don't want to die on. I think Christ is supreme in everything. And I'm willing to say Christ is supreme in everything in the Bible, even if I'm going to get some pushback from some of my good friends. I side with Jesus. <laughs> That's a little unfair, but you, get the, you kind of get the idea, right? Um, I hope so. Number four, a fourth guideline for reading the Bible Christianly would be remember that Revelation is progressive. Remember that revelation is progressive. In other words, it's moving somewhere. It's progressing. Okay, We might learn a little bit here in almost like seed form, but there's development, there's, there's progression, and we all start to understand things better and more clearly where there are types and shadows in the Old Testament. Now we see the substance and the reality that belongs to Christ. It's, go, it's, it's growing, if you will, in that sense. Progressive revelation is, maybe it sounds intimidating to a new Christian, but it's super important. If you don't realize there's a progression of unfolding in your Bible and, and seeing things clearly and in anticipation, things prophesied and then fulfillment, it's going to be confusing. 
really is going to be confusing. We, we, what we don't want to do is just to open our Bible and say, okay, how are we going to understand everything? Um, I think I'll go to Deuteronomy. Well, if you're going to read Deuteronomy when things that were anticipated have already become reality, you're going to be confused. You're going to be super confused. Okay? God is eternal and His Word will last forever, but we have to remember that God has been working in time as we know it. And it's been moving toward a climax. It's been moving toward uh, the, the ultimate culmination of all things. Bono has it wrong. Okay, I like Bono a lot. I'm a big U2 fan. But he has it wrong when he says, time is irrelevant. It's not linear. Well, actually, God has chosen to work in time in a linear fashion where you have beginning and you have end. It doesn't mean there aren't um, phases and it doesn't mean there aren't things that happen that, that, that recycle themselves along the way. But we have a beginning and we have an end and it's moving somewhere. And we've got to remember that. We're going to be super confused. Super confused. Maybe Hebrews chapter 1 is a good place to start when it comes to progressive revelation. God has been revealing himself. He, as Don Carson likes to say, he's a talking God. Okay? Uh, he's a talking God, but his ultimate speech, his climactic speech, his final word is with his son. So we need to remember that and read our Bibles that way or we're going to be pretty confused. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. That's Revelation. And I don't mean the book of Revelation. I mean God revealing Himself to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, see, there's, there's progress, progress, whichever one you prefer. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of His glory, uh, the glory of God, in the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to, to angels. The name uh, He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The main point to see that at the very beginning, He's revealed Himself, but there, it's been going somewhere. It's been in anticipation, and Christ is the final word. Christ is the climactic word, the culminating high point of things. And so if you read your Bible and pretend like that's not the case, or you don't know that that's the case, it's going to be confusing. It's going to be totally confusing. The book of Hebrews would warn us if we act like it hasn't happened, it's actually a spiritually dangerous place to be, a perilous place to be. We don't want to go back and, and be shadow huggers, okay? Because the substance has come, so don't be doing that because revelation has been progressive and we know more and God wants us to embrace the, 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 the fullness of His revelation, which would be in Christ. Now, related to this, uh, this matter of revelation being progressive, would be, uh, this could be a separate point, but we're not going to do that, it would be the fact that we need to see that in the progress of Revelation, there, there are some things between the old and the new that are the same, and there are some things that are different. Okay, you want to be technical, there, there's continuity, continuation, and there's discontinuity. It's not all the same. And if you understand that, it's going to help you. It's going to help you read your Bible better.
Some things are the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament, like God. <laughs> okay. Some things are different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you don't understand that, I mean, just a super, you know, low-lying fruit that we can pick up on would be Old Covenant food laws. Okay? No bacon. Glad you're not a Jew, right? You're, you're a New Covenant Christian. And then we go to the New Testament, and we see, so Leviticus 11, Acts chapter 10, it's different. There's something different. There's a discontinuity. Uh, there's not that food law going on anymore. And, oh, that tells us something. Nation of Israel. God's people are made up of a nation in the Old Testament. Okay? If you don't take into account progressive revelation and you don't read your Bible in a careful way and you don't see discontinuity, you're going to be confused because when we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And the church is made up of all nations, not the holy nation of Israel. And it's super, super important that you'd see the difference there. And uh, you'd eventually figure it out on your own, but it's so helpful to have somebody point these things out to you so you get a jump, uh, get a head start. There's a distinction. There's a difference. And yet there's continuity. There's similarity. How are people in the Old Testament saved? By works? I don't think so. I don't think so. Read Genesis 12. It's not the case. Read Genesis 15. Read Genesis 17. Oh, let's just make it simple. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. We're not actually going to go there because we're just keeping things moving. Romans chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham and David in the Old Testament as proof positive that the only way anyone was ever saved is by faith alone. Justified by faith alone. That's, that's similarity. That's the same. There's only one way to have ever been saved. As they're anticipating the coming of Messiah... We're on the other side, after the fact, but there's only one Savior ultimately as well. And we talked about that last week when we looked at the book of Hebrews. There's ultimately only one atoning sacrifice. It's Christ. Progressive revelation helps us to see that. I wish someone would have helped me understand that early on. It really, really would have helped me to work through some confusion. Just seeing the difference, that there's a uniqueness. Some things are the same. Some things are different. Not too long ago, we talked about our place in this world as a church and, and how we think through social, cultural kinds of things. If we were Israel, the holy nation, it would be a lot different for us. Okay, But we're, we're not a holy nation as the church. And so our, our ethic, if you will, looks a bit different in our responsibilities in the culture at large. And so those are important issues related to the progress of Revelation related to continuity and discontinuity. And it doesn't mean there isn't debate. It doesn't mean there aren't some, some difficult, sophisticated kinds of nuance issues. But there's a lot of that we can just cut right through and say, you know, if I just understood better how there are similarities and differences and what those are, I could read my Bible a lot better and not be confused, not be so susceptible to false teaching, reading things out of context. So helpful. So helpful. Let's move on to number five. Uh, a fifth guideline would be keep the ending in view. Keep the ending in view. When you're reading your Bible, just remember how it ends. Okay? And, and let's talk about this holistically, but let's talk about it even with the gospel account. When we're, we're studying the gospel of Luke right now, 
every single week, you're probably doing this without thinking about it. I'm not that talented. I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. I'm consciously thinking about it. Every single week, I'm keeping the end in view. Okay? And what that does is it helps me realize Jesus is doing all these things and we're looking at these things and we don't say, wow, ultimately Jesus, He he is really something else. There's a lot of benefits. I, I, I think He's just being a great example. It's keeping me from doing that. Because I'm realizing based upon the way it ends, He has come to, to atone for sins. He has come to be the resurrected one. He has come to be the Savior, right? And you know this. You, you absolutely know this. But sometimes we forget. I like Matthew's Gospel account so much because from the very beginning in chapter 1, you shall name Him Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 21. You shall name Him Jesus. Why do they name Him Jesus? Because He will save His people from their sins. It's the great clue. Oh, it's like the, 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 the hint flag. Okay, remember how this is going to end. He's more than an example. He's more than a miracle worker. And remember that throughout the whole thing. It ends in Matthew 27 and 28 with substitutionary atonement and resurrection. And it's all been in anticipation of that. need to read our Bibles that way. It keeps me from preaching some pretty bizarre kinds of things. Okay, it keeps us from drawing some pretty bizarre kinds of conclusions. We're remembering what He really came to do. So when you're reading your Bible, remember how it ends, and you're really going to be helped a ton. You're really going to be helped a ton. Now, on a more holistic level, I'm going to say the same thing. I'm going to say the same thing. We know how the Bible ends. We know that God has a plan, and it's unfolding, and it's going somewhere. And Jesus is at the center of the whole plan. And so I need to keep that in view. I need to, to know that when Jesus is, is showing us glimpses of His kingdom power and the glimpses of His kingdom by doing these healings, what's keeping me on track is I know that they're temporary and they don't last because I know the unfolding and development and how things are going to go and how things are going to end. And I know that Romans chapter 8 talks about the very end where there's going to be perfect restoration and perfect healing. And so what's happening in the meantime when Jesus is on earth is not that ultimate healing. It's not the ultimate restoration. I read 1 Thessalonians 4 as another passage about the end. Okay, Dead in Christ shall rise. Oh, that's talking about ultimate end. And so when Jesus is raising people before that ultimate end, I'm concluding this is, a, this is a, a proof that He is who He said He is. This is proof that He is the King of that coming kingdom and He's demonstrating that power. If I don't keep that in mind, I'm probably going to have some pretty, in my opinion, bizarre conclusions about who Jesus is. Keeping that stuff in mind. How about when I read, read Isaiah 53 and in Isaiah 53 and by His stripes we are healed. Well, I've got one of two options. I'm going to say, I think that's actually true. Or, well, that actually doesn't mean what we say it means because we wouldn't want to be charismatic. Or, maybe there's another option. It is actually true, but when is it going to be actualized? When is it going to actually be, become reality for us? 
Well, I'm reading my Bible. I'm reading the end and keeping the end in view. It's going to be reality for us when we see Christ and are made like Him. It's going to be reality for us when the dead in Christ are raised and will be raised eternally. And so I can say I literally take that as healing. I don't have to be ashamed of that. I'm so thankful for that. You should be too. We're waiting for that, and it's based upon the work of Christ, and we don't have to water that down, but it's it's something we're waiting for. We're waiting for that. But Jesus previewed it while he was here. And we think he really and truly did those things. And you say, but why isn't that happening in my life? Because we're keeping the end in view, because the Bible talks about the end in other places. And that's when everyone experiences that and they never get sick again like those people that Jesus healed and they never die again like the people that Jesus raised. We're just keeping our brains turned on and keeping the big picture involved. Super helpful. Reminds me of of other people who talk about a puzzle, you know? Uh, If you can see the picture of the puzzle, it's a lot easier to put the puzzle together. You can see the, 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 the end, if you will. This is how it's supposed to look when, it, when everything is restored and the, the return of Christ happens. And how am I going to put this little piece of the puzzle together if I don't know how, what the ultimate picture looks like? I'm probably going to come up with some kind of perverted view or some kind of strange view or, or half-true view, which is a half-false view. But we know the end. We know how it ends. We know the culmination of all things in Christ. And we can therefore take these pieces of Bible texts and say, I've got ultimate perspective where this fits in. It's been super helpful in my life. Hope it can be helpful in yours. Number six, look at the right things in the right ways. Look at the right things in the right ways. So you're looking at the right things in the right ways. Okay, what do I mean by that? Right things. Um, let's, let's use a person as a thing. Um, David. How do you look at David in the Bible? Esther. How do you look at Esther in the Bible? And the list could go on. Different events, different people. How do you view them? Is the Bible a a book of miscellaneous stories, true stories, about these people who are really amazing? Yeah. Is the Bible about um, God doing amazing things? Absolutely. Absolutely. First and foremost, though, if we keep in mind, first and foremost, it's about God working, providing redemption, and the culmination of all things, and the reconciliation of all things in Christ. And we know, according to Ephesians chapter 1, that this plan existed before time began. I'm going to look at things the right way. I'm going to look at people the right way and circumstances the right way. I'm going to be more prone to. What's it ultimately about? I keep that in mind. And now I'm going to be much less likely to make the Bible so much about this great, awesome guy. He was almost sinless. He was so great. Named David. Right? 
And it does get kind of awkward when you try to explain to somebody how he's just so awesome and so great and so amazing that he killed somebody and was an adulterer and a liar. But be more like David, boys and girls. Look at the right things the right way. You know, the promise that was made to David, the weak one, was for an eternal throne. And David died. And David's son died. And on and on and on. There's got to be an ultimate David. There's got to be fulfillment of that eternal promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then we get to the New Testament it becomes a lot clearer. Not that there aren't hints along the way, but we, we get there and Jesus is in the line of David. And Jesus is the son of David. And he comes from the right town like David. And all of a sudden we're saying, I'm looking at David a different way. I, I, I'm looking at the Bible a different way. It was in, in anticipation and he's not an end in and of himself because if I do that, it's like taking the piece of the puzzle, by the way, and going, you know, upside down and convoluted and perverted. I understand the bigger picture going back to that and where things are headed with the ending in view and I could take that piece of the puzzle and say, I get it. Not that there aren't things we can learn from David. We can learn that he was weak and God used him and he trusted God. Those are good things. We could talk about Esther the same way. What's so important about Esther? Well, I don't know. I kind of wonder sometimes. What was Esther doing with that unbeliever? I mean, think about it. Would you want your daughter to marry an idolater? Oh, Esther, she was awesome. Let's do a character study on Esther. Let's teach our young teenage girls about the, how awesome Esther is. Esther, who we don't know if was a believer or not? I really don't want my daughter to uh, do a lot of things Esther was involved in. And I realize we could defend Esther and say, you know what, she didn't have her parents and she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The point is not about Esther, good or bad. Probably easier to point out the bad than the good. The point is, God has this young Jewish woman at the right place at the right time. So that the Jewish people are not annihilated. Oh, by the way, because if they were, the plan of redemption that exists before the foundation of the world wouldn't unfold and you wouldn't have Messiah. And so for such a time as this, tell my daughter that, for such a time as this, he had her there so that the Jewish people could be preserved. And you say, awesome. I have hope then because I'm trusting in the ultimate David. It's a different kind of thing. But the look at the right things or right people in the right ways. You can even look at this in a little bit different way. You know, you hear people say the Bible is, is the good book that I live my life by. That's true and false. It's a good book. You live your life by it. Yeah, I could we, we could understand that, but it's so much more than that. So much more than a book of principles. Timeless truths for living, you know. 
so much more than timeless truths for living. It's about God. Here's my list. The book of, uh, the good book we live our lives by. A book of timeless truths for living. Inspirational stories of faithful people. Uh, the answers to life's problems. A personal devotional. Well, each of those is about me, ultimately. Even though there's nuggets of truth in each one of those. How about the Bible is about God. It's God's story. And it's God's great drama of how He came and how He made promises and how He keeps His Word and how He delivers His people. And that's a lot different. And we're the benefactors. I always get that confused. Beneficiaries? Benefactors. Beneficiaries? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Michael Lawrence said this, This single story has God as its author, its primary actor, its center, and the climax of this story is the glory of God in salvation. That sounds a lot more Christian to have it be about Him and to have it be about God and His greatness and what He's doing. And by the way, where are we going to find our true significance? By taking a story that's supposed to be about someone else and making it all about us? I'm not going to find my true significance there because that's not even rational. I'm going to find my true significance if I find my place in the story because it has a place for me. It has a place for me. And then all of a sudden my life's going to make sense. And then all of a sudden I'm going to find fulfillment because I realize that God is doing this and He's doing it for me. He's working in my life. It's personal. Well, that puts us at Six, we better do seven and then we better be done. We better be done. Number seven, read bigger portions than smaller. Read bigger portions than smaller. This is a simple one. Uh, I don't have any Bible verses to to kind of help you along. Um, But I so wish somebody would have told me this. Read big portions, especially when you come to historical narrative, right? For me to say, I believe God's word is true, every word of it. Is that true? Yeah, every word is true. And then all of a sudden, it's as if I'm going to think I'm going to find some hidden meaning in some one word because every word is true. And I'm easy pickings for some kind of cult. Okay, so if we have a book and it's historical narrative, it's probably a pretty good idea to, to, to read more of it than less of it and look for the meaning in the whole picture than just in the little tiny word or something like that. And so a lot of Christians could be helped if we just said, you know, read bigger portions and smaller portions. There's a time to read really small portions. But in circles like we run in, oftentimes it's the opposite problem. We want to just take every word apart and every little detail apart. And there's a place for that. But we might lose the author's intent when it's meant to be read in one sitting. I mean, let's even think of a a small book like Ephesians. What's Ephesians about? Well, Ephesians is is about a lot of different things. It's about uh, God's great plan, the church, and it's God's great plan of salvation and Christ. But it... Before you know it, if we don't realize the big picture of Ephesians, 
we forget the gospel because it's all gospel front-loaded. Then it gets into the practical things. And before you know it, we're just focusing on the practical things. And we forgot that it was written as a letter, meant to be read as a letter. So we understand the big picture if we're reading it as it was intended as a letter. Read bigger portions than smaller portions and it'll help you understand. And here's another thing I wish somebody would have told me in that, in that regard. That there's no um, hidden secret meaning in original languages. I used to kind of think that. Man, if I could only know Greek. If I could only know Hebrew. Aramaic, not so much. But <laughs> just a little bit of the Bible's in Aramaic. I'm thankful that I had to take original languages. Years of original languages. Um, I'm thankful for those things. I'm not trying to slight those things. But you've got to know how Greek dictionaries came to be by looking at Greek words in sentences, in paragraphs, in chapters, and in books. We come up with word meanings based upon word usage. In context. God didn't say, here's the Bible, and if you just look up, down on a cloud is going to come a Greek lexicon and a Hebrew one. And if you have these special books, you're going to know the secrets. It actually sounds like Greek mysticism, doesn't it? And sometimes Christians are, are, are held captive that, to that way of thinking. I was held captive to that way of thinking. And all you have is, is chaos and confusion, and you're ready to be a cult. How do we know the meaning of Scripture? Well, Scripture, in context, and we've got really good English translations. And so we read our Bibles, and we read the big picture, and we read it again and again and again so as to understand the big picture. And if somebody says, well, I know Greek, I'm going to say, well, that's nice. So do I. Let's not downplay. I, I'm, I'm thankful. But the way we come up with word meanings is by word usage. And so, big picture trumps every time. Every time. If somebody comes to you and says, I know this special doctrine. And I know it because I took Greek. You need to turn and run as fast as you possibly can. You need to just get away from that person. Big picture. Big picture helps a ton. John Calvin, I don't know if he ever used Greek in a sermon. And he actually made a point to not use Greek in his sermons, not because he didn't know Greek, but because he's coming out of Roman Catholicism where you have the haves and the have-nots. The haves for a long time had Bibles and the regular Christians didn't have any Bible. And so they controlled people. And so he made a point to preach the Bible in the language of the people so that they could understand it. And he didn't have to use any Greek to make it simple, straightforward, and known so that they could read their Bibles too. Think big picture. Think big picture. It's the small picture stuff, quite honestly, many times, not always, 
that gets us in trouble. And now all of a sudden I've got a cult following because I came up with something no one else ever came up with. And by the way, when you hear that or think that, it's time to realize that you probably didn't come up with anything new. I hate to end on this note. I hate to end. Man, I don't want to end, especially on that kind of note. Let's end on this note. Let's end on this note. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to create. He works all things after the counsel of His will. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. So everything that has ever happened has been according to God's plan. He's sovereign, in charge, and in control. All things after the counsel of His will. But as He planned, purposed, predestined, Ephesians chapter 1, He planned, purposed to provide redemption. Redemption in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you read the Bible, it doesn't mean... You've got incarnation in Genesis chapter 3, full-blown. Progressive revelation happens. But it does mean that he's already had the plan before he ever created it. And so to see nothing of it ever until we get to Matthew chapter 1 is probably problematic. And we're going to see next time that Paul talks about this Gospel when he's writing Romans and 1 Corinthians oh, and Galatians. And he speaks of it as something that was spoken of in the Old Testament. And so, read your Bible like there's been a plan all along. And you'll read the Bible like a Christian. Okay? You'll read the Bible like a Christian. 